everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety. I'm your host, Mark. And before we get started, I want to thank AKG, our sponsor, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. It's got a Lira mic and a great set of headphones, and I'm using them every week. But Josh Caterer is our guest, and he's got quite a story. He started a band with two brothers, which became the Smoking Popes. They decided to let Josh sing because he was the best at singing and playing while not looking at his hands. They quickly went from recording 18 songs in a day to opening for bands like Green Day. And there's a funny story about that. But with all that success came a pretty big fall in the form of a cocaine overdose. Josh survived and found a new purpose in his faith. But trying to integrate that into his music was a challenge. After forming Duvall, forming an occasional blues band, Jackson Mudd, and then returning to Smoking Popes, Josh is now releasing a live solo album and it's a mix of Pope songs and cover songs. Pick up physical copies from Provda Records or digitally on Bandcamp. Follow Josh at Josh Caterer. Follow us at Performance ANX. We accept coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com. And I hope you enjoyed Josh Caterer on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Ready? Hey, this is Josh Caterer from The Smoking Popes, um, and I have a, a new solo album out called The Hideout Sessions, so look for that. I am delighted to be part of this performance anxiety podcast that you are now experiencing. No, it's, it's not rocket science. I won't, I won't be, like, eating the whole time. <laughs> I'm just sort of like finishing up my dinner as we get started here. So no problem. No problem. I, I'll try not to slobber into the microphone. All right, man. So I do appreciate you coming on and spending some time with me and, and talking about not only the new album, but basically how you got into music and, and your history, because you've been in music for a while now. So I wanted to find out initially, and I, I guess we'll, we'll start this way. So you, you're, you're in the band Smoking Popes with two of your yeah. brothers. So Matt and Eli. Yes. All right. So that's kind of unusual for a, a three brothers to be in a band and, and to take it professionally. I mean, I've, you know, I've heard of other family bands and all, but not a whole lot stick it out. And so I guess since all three yeah, of you it, became it professional is, musicians, it is a, you sort of you you. It's, it's more common to have maybe two brothers in a. Exactly, exactly. But three three siblings in a band is a little unusual, and so I wanted to find out. I mean, was music a big part of the house growing up? Because that it sounds like it had a big effect, a big influence on the three of you. Yes, it was definitely a very musical household. Both of our parents were big appreciators of music. There were a lot of records in the house. And it was it was set up in the living room where our dad had a, a, a stereo with a record player, cassette player, you know, out as sort of like a, a centerpiece of the of the living room on these on these kind of bookshelves that just had rows and rows of records. I mean, our our, our dad had like a, kind of an impressive like he had a couple hundred records there. Wow! And he had like all of the Beatles records. He had a bunch of uh, Rolling Stones records. He had Zeppelin, The Who, 
um, all that kind of stuff, which is now classic rock, but which was kind of contemporary at the time because it was the 70s. Yep. Um, and he also had a lot of, uh, he had kind of eclectic tastes, but he, he liked blues. So he had some, some Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker and, and people in there. But then he had a lot of uh, just vocalists like he had some Sinatra and Torme and Ray Charles and he liked some jazz stuff uh Jimmy McGriff oh wow uh, yeah like and he had all these bands like like the amazing rhythm aces oh I know them yeah yeah <laughs> and like uh uh Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show and just like wow all this, all this stuff, like there, there's a lot of music that I, um, that I still love to this day that I discovered simply by, by looking through my dad's record collection. And there, like there was stuff that he would play, but then there was stuff that I discovered in there that I never heard him put on, but I was intrigued by the album cover. And one of those is Tom Waits. Oh, the first time, wow. The first time I ever heard Tom Waits is I was just like looking through my dad's records and he had Heart Attack and Vine in there. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I just put it on and it starts, I was just destroyed by it for, from, from the beginning of that. It opens with that just dirty guitar riff. And just like yes. so so bluesy and guttural and minimal just like like one little guitar a stand-up bass kick and snare and then tom waits voice comes in and just decimates you and i was like i can't believe i'm hearing this right now it was one of those moments where like there are certain musical moments like the first time you hear a song or an artist it arrests you so much that it's like that moment is frozen in your mind yep Forever. And uh, the first time I heard Tom Waits was one of those moments. But I had my dad to thank for that. And then uh, our mom was into country music. So she had like every uh, Willie Nelson record. She okay. had. Some... And that was back when country music was good. Yeah. So... Yeah, it was. It was. So we were listening to the good stuff. Uh, she had some Merle Haggard, Dolly Parton. Now, she was huge into Kenny Rogers. She had like every Kenny Rogers record oh, and wow. he, has a, he has a lot of records out yeah and that, he had 20 kenny rogers albums whoa and that's he was in the like was he in the new christy minstrels to start with oh so it was he, something called uh the first edition that's kenny what it was first edition yeah yeah so you got all that too yeah and so we got that all from our parents like they were always listening there was always like on twin peaks there's always music in the air Nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, we got that from them. And um, our dad played guitar a little bit. He had a guitar, like a nylon string guitar that he would sometimes get out and uh, just sit there and, and try to play songs out of these, these songbooks. books would get be like chord charts for contemporary songs. Oh, cool. Like I remember, I remember being, I don't know how old I was, but, but, we were all sort of in a half circle around our dad and, and we're, he's playing, trying to play night moves by Bob Seger out of this chord book. And oh, wow. Singing along with him and stuff. So that, that's how the, the, the love of music all got started. When did you really decide to, you wanted to play music? Were there uh, 
lessons involved? I mean, was it, was it, were you guys guitar, bass, and drums, or was it like school bands where you're playing brass instruments or? When I was in the first grade, we discovered that I had sort of an ear for music because we went over to my first grade teacher's house for dinner. Like my parents were sort of friends with their, their family. Okay. And um, they had a piano in their living room. So we ate dinner and then I, I wandered into the other room and went up and went up and found the piano and just started plunking out a tune that I had heard. Oh, wow. And it was, we, we were approaching Christmas time. I remember what it was. It was silver bells. Silver bell, silver bell. And I'm like, just like one finger kind of finding, finding that melody on the, wow. on the key. And I'm doing that for a few minutes. And I remember, this is like one of my, another distinct early memory is like, then looking up and seeing like my parents and my teacher sort of hovering over me with these sort of fascinated looks on their face. Like, like they were like, what do you, where did you learn that? Like, what? <laughs> and that's when our teacher, my teacher told my parents, he's got a, a natural gift. You should put him in lessons. So I was put into piano lessons, although I didn't want to play the piano. I wasn't interested in in that instrument. I would much rather have been playing guitar from the beginning. So I didn't yeah. apply myself to the piano lessons. And uh, eventually, after a couple of years, my parents let me stop taking piano lessons. And instead, uh, my dad bought a guitar for my brother and a bass for me. Oh, okay. So you guys are playing, taking lessons. And when did you think, hey, let's let's start playing music? And, and were you, when you guys got together, were you just playing cover songs or were you working on original music? Uh, well, we started with cover songs. Eventually, we um, also got a drum kit. And so in our basement, we had a little music room down there where we had a drum kit, a guitar with an amp, and a bass with an amp, and a little, uh, I don't think we had a, micro, a vocal mic till later. It was, it was just like instrumental jamming. And if you wanted to sing along, you just had to shout. <laughs> and uh, But we would play... You know, we started with the Ramones, and we would just play Ramones songs, but but we would we would jam a little bit, and then everybody would get up and like trade instruments. <laughs> nice. So we all kind of know how to play guitar and bass and drums, and we just figured that out when we were relatively young. Wow. So we all could do it. It's just that when we eventually got around to deciding to start a band where we were going to play in front of people. Mm -hmm. We had to figure out who could play and sing at the same time. And I was the best at that. Okay. Because I could like sing and play without looking down at my hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got nominated to be the singer in the band. Nice. <laughs> and that, that band was Speed Stick, right? Or was that um, before yeah, Speed Stick? Yeah, at first it was, it was Speed Stick. Uh, which was just consisted of the three caterer brothers. Okay. Although our youngest brother, Eli, was pretty, uh, pretty young. I think he was like a freshman 
was he a freshman in high school or was he actually in like eighth grade? I can't remember. It was right around there. Yeah. And uh, my uh, parents said, like, you know, he was he was too young to like really do the band, like play out and do that sort of thing. So, okay. so then he had to to step out of the band, and uh, we had to find a drummer. We kind of like figured figured out that you know Matt's strength was uh, was on the bass. And we needed to, to to find another drummer, and we did that, and then sort of morphed from Speed Stick into uh, the Smoking Popes. Okay. Although the very first EP that the Smoking Popes put out consisted of songs that we recorded when we were called Speed Stick. Okay, so you'd re- so you had already recorded the songs. You'd gone in. And- we had found a guy in our area who I don't know how we found out about this guy, but um, <laughs> he just had a home in his basement. Oh, okay, and. Um, we went over there and, and uh, recorded like something like 18 songs in one day, like all these songs that we had, <laughs> all these songs that we had come up with. And a lot of them were, were dumb and not very good. And, but then we decided like, no, let's really, let's really try to do this and let's pick a better name and, and go for it. And let's weed through those songs and try like a small handful of ones that are like sort of the best Right. You know, if, if we have any kind of like keepers in there. Okay. And that's what the first Smoking Pope's EP was. I didn't think that I'd be man enough for Sandra Bernhardt. But then I thought it might be just that kind of sensitivity which appeals to her. I know what's going on behind those doomed and sultry eyes. So how did you come up with the name Smoking Popes? Um, my uh, brother, Matt, he suggested that we call ourselves the Popes because he had heard uh, that there was a, a gang, a street gang in Chicago called the Popes. Oh, boy. He was like, that's just a cool name. Because like we, we thought it would be cool to have some kind of religious imagery okay. in the name of the band. Like we were, we were big into like... There was a band around there called uh, the Screaming Blue Messiahs. Do you remember them? Yes, I do. They were that was one of our favorite bands, and then like just bands that like it just seemed kind of sophisticated and edgy to have like some sort of religious imagery in your title, like the Jesus and Mary chain, or yeah, like the Dead Kennedys were putting out, you know, like in God We Trust Incorporated. So just to incorporate kind of religious themes in there, we wanted to do that. So I said, yeah, the Popes, that sounds cool, except for we can't just straight up name ourselves after a gang. <laughs> <laughs> that that could go poorly. They so, could have bad repercussions. Yeah. Let's try to flesh it out, and like, you know, come up with another word to attach to it. The something popes. And so then for weeks, we, just any word that we could think of to put with, put in front of popes. Okay. We just wrote it down and we little lists of it. And um, we had a bunch of them. And I, I just, I remember that at the, at the end, it was between the local popes and the smoking popes, both of which seem to have like a certain flow, like they just rolled off the tongue. Right, yeah. But smoking seemed edgier, and it also 
potentially a reference to one of our favorite movies at the time, which was The Pope of Greenwich Village. Oh, yeah. Uh, starring Mickey Rourke. And he just, he always looks so cool with a cigarette. <laughs> yes. You know, there's that big scene at the end where he goes in and he's he's talking to Bedbug Eddie. Yep. And he's all done up. He's got his he just got his hair done and he got like shaved by the guy with the with the hot towel and everything. <laughs> and he goes in and he's like, "I'm the Pope of Greenwich Village now." Yeah. But I like got this pack of cigarettes there and his, his Zippo lighter, and it's just like that's let's name ourselves after him. They... The smoking popes. <laughs> That's awesome. The thing that I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to find out is the, the approach to the music is different than a lot of other bands at the time, because your vocals are a lot more along the lines of the, to me anyway, to the, the influences that you had growing up, the crooners and it sounds like that was a big influence in that. Was that something that was natural to you or was that something that you guys wanted to do to separate yourself from some of the other punkier bands that were out there? It just seemed natural to incorporate all those influences because, you know, those were influences that we, we picked up along the way from our parents. Yeah. But then yeah. later when we started to discover our own music and buy albums, it was more, you know, it started out with like ACDC and Kiss, but then, then we discovered punk and we just went, we went all in on just, we bought all the Ramones and the Dead Kennedys and the Buzzcocks and the, uh, the Undertones and Black Flag and Circle Jerks and all, you know, all these great punk bands that we yeah. just started to immerse ourselves in and like loved kind of the, the raw energy of that. But I, I still, I grew up thinking that Frank Sinatra was genuinely cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if, if, you know, a lot of people, you know, start with an antithetic relationship with their parents' music where they kind of, they wouldn't want to incorporate influences of, of bands that their parents liked. Right. Because their, their own music is sort of a rejection of everything that their parents are like stand for. Yeah, exactly. But in our, in our case, it, that wasn't it. I was like, no, like the stuff that we, that we picked up from dad was like, that's good stuff. So let's just blend that into, to what we're doing. And what if, what if Frank Sinatra sang for the Ramones? Like if the Ramones were his backing band, you know, right. but you could even hear kind of strands of that in bands like the Buzzcocks, like, like, um, some of the songwriting and the sensibility of what the Buzzcocks were doing, because they were very sort of minimalist and buzzsaw guitars and mm -hmm. very purely punk in their approach. But I think that the sensibility of their songwriting and what, you know, Pete Shelley was communicating in his lyrics and vocals and melody lines was more sophisticated and had like a tenderness to it where he was bringing a couple of different things together. And I was hugely influenced by that. I would say that my, my favorite punk singers were the ones that ha had a vibrato in there. Okay. So Fiergel Shelley from the undertones was he, like, he's such a unique singer and such a huge influence. Jello Biafra with his crazy, uh, operatic vibrato. Yeah, whatever that is. Yes. 
whatever he's doing. He's, and But like in his case, he makes it sound like everything that he's doing is kind of a uh, like satirical. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he just seemed so smart. And so it's like, man, if you if you really want to have it going on, you have to incorporate a vibrato in there eventually in it. But I, I loved that because of all the other singers that I was listening to. You know, all the great old golden era singers have these great vibratos. For sure. So I had to develop one at, at some point. <laughs> not not on the like the early seven inches that the Smoking Popes put out. I didn't have that yet. I was just sort of shouting. But right around the time that we made our first full-length album, it's called The Smoking Popes Get Fired, that's when I started trying to bring vibrato into it and uh, kind of experimenting with that and eventually settled into a version of it that that I still use today. <laughs> you, got, you hooked up with Ben uh, Weasel from Screeching Weasel to get that one done, right? Yeah. He... Uh, he was the guy that recommended that we go down and record with Master Genie okay. at Iguana Studios. Oh, we didn't know, but but Ben, we were briefly associated with with Ben Weasel because he, you know, we were playing at this place called McGregor's in Elmhurst, which was the uh, the all ages club in the suburbs where like all the punk bands would would play. Okay, you know. It, the place to go see all ages punk shows. Right. Okay. And we started playing there and screeching weasel played there a lot. And, uh, of course, you know, to us, Ben was like, they were like big, you know, out of all the bands that played there, they were like known and successful and they would always sell out their shows. And so they were kind of like punk celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> so when Ben weasel, it turns out like he, he got one of our, seven inches and listened to it and liked it and then got in touch with me just to let me know that he liked our band and it, it seemed like he wanted to initiate some kind of a working relationship i remember i had a i had this one phone call with him where he where we talked about all that stuff and he's like i want to hook you guys up with uh mass and i'll connect you with i think you know i think the right label for you would be uh it wasn't johan's face it was uh why, why am I blanking now on the name of the label? It was, they put out uh, that uh, Octane Chicago comp that we were on. Oh, gosh. I can look it up real fast and then edit it, which means it probably won't happen. I'll probably not. I'll probably keep this all in. So. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay that I forgot, but. Uh... It's been a while, man. You know, look, we're about the same age. I think we're like a year apart. So I, I get it. I know what, I, yeah. I know what it's like. But then, so then we made that first record and it was kind of, you know, it was not like an official relationship like where he said, I want to manage you guys. It was just, he expressed an interest in us and he connected us with some people and we like, we went forward with those connections. But then that relationship with him ended pretty quickly because this thing, this thing happened where the Metro in Chicago so wh where where are you located? I'm in Virginia. Okay. So you don't know any of this stuff. No. You don't know Chicago. No, I, I've only passed through Chicago. I've, about okay. this time, I was living in New Jersey. So. All right. Um, so, but the Metro, I mean, people know of the Metro because um, we ended up recording a couple of live albums at the Metro and it's, it's like a, 
a pretty well-known Chicago club. Yeah. And we played there a lot. Our, our manager was the guy that owned the Metro. Ah, okay. But, bef- but just before that happened, there was this, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it. There was uh, some drama in Chicago because Metro started having punk shows and they had previously, for a, a period of time, I don't know how long, they had officially stopped having punk shows because um, apparently there was some violence at a couple of shows and, oh. you know, the police got involved and some people got hurt or something. Oh. And Metro had gone through a period of a few years at least where they, they had a, a, a no, no punk in the club. They just wouldn't book punk bands. Wow. Um, so then, then they started up again in the early uh, 90s, right around the time we were starting out. So Ben Weasel, he called together people from all these punk bands in Chicago and, and, and got them together in a group and addressed them and said, hey, we got to take a stand against the Metro because they haven't been supportive of, of us, but now that, um, now that our, our scene is, is starting to, uh, get some traction and become financially viable, they want to, they want to get on the punk train. Right. And we got a, he, he, he had this petition where he, he wanted all these bands, all these punk bands in Chicago to sign this petition saying that we were boycotting the Metro. Oh, wow. And, uh, so I don't know how many bands were there. I mean, this, this, it was at the, the, the headquarters of this label that had put out our first record. Okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't Johan's face. It was like, that's all I can find right now. As far as that, uh, let me see. Is it Radius? Well, Radius was for Inoculator. Radius was for Inoculator, and then we self-released a couple of EPs. But then whoever put out the Octung Chicago compilation. All right, I'm going to look at that, too. That was the label, and it was, at their, it was at their sort of headquarters where this meeting took place. And there was, I don't know, let's say, you know, 15 bands that had all gathered to listen to uh, uh, Ben Weasel tell us that we needed to sign this petition and boycott the Metro. Was it Underdog? Yes, that was it. Yes. Underdog Records. Ah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> no problem. Thank you, Google and Discogs. And of, out of all the bands that were there, there were two bands that refused to sign the petition that night. Apocalypse Hoboken, and the smoking popes. All right. And uh, I, that night, uh, you know, everybody was lining up to sign this this petition. That eventually, after it was signed by everybody, got published in uh, Maximum Rock and Roll. So I, it was probably just some some big publicity stunt for right. uh, for Mr. Weasel. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Weasel. Oh, Mr. Mr. Weasel. But um, we didn't sign it. In fact, we kind of like just hung back. And then when, when we were like the last ones left in the room, I went up to Ben and I was like, Ben, you know, I, I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but I said something like, it just kind of seems like 
like this is your fight. Like you, you have a beef against the people at the Metro, but I've never had any problems with the Metro. Yeah. I've seen shows there. I like the club. I just, I don't have any, I don't, I, I don't share your feelings about, about this club. Right. Perfectly reasonable. And he was just like, okay, well do what you want, you know, whatever. Don't sign it. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I didn't. And that was the end of our relationship with Ben Weasel. He, he just, we did not speak again after that. Wow. Man, that's pretty petty. <laughs> yeah. I, well, there goes his invitation out of the podcast. <laughs> for next week. Now hey. you're going to have to <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Uh, oh, well. That's all right. Who remembers Ben Weasel anyway? A lot of people do. <laughs> I know. I do. I actually do. Damn it. I'm screwing myself at every turn here. I like their music. They've got some really good records. Yeah, oh, yeah. It just didn't work out as far as like having a personal relationship. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. <laughs> All right, so that, but that first album, Get Fired, that kind of led to Smoking Pope's opening for Green Day, didn't it? It did. entertainer one day at their show listings and we saw that green day was coming to town or may have just they had just put out dookie yeah so they were like they were huge just yeah. huge and so they were coming to town playing at i think it was the vic oh if you said the metro i was gonna start laughing no it wasn't the, <laughs> <laughs> it was the vic. it was either the vic or the riviera but we we saw in there that Green Day was coming, and the Smoking Popes were listed as the opening band. <laughs> and this was uh, this was news to us. <laughs> um, Surprise! So we we contacted the guy. We knew the guy who who you know booked the show. We contacted him, and we said, "What's going on? How come we're listed as the opening band? Like, this is—is is this like a typo? Is this an error of some kind?" Right. And he said, "Well, no, they asked for you." Wow. And uh, he was like, "And I didn't have your number, so, uh, but I just figured you'd want to do it." <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, imagine that kind of level of confidence where you're going to put that down and it's going to be printed in a in a physical magazine. Yeah. But and, you haven't actually gotten confirmation <laughs> from the band yet to see if they're even in town. Yeah. I I was eventually going to get around to telling you, 
seeing if you were interested. <laughs> right. So yeah, and so it, we what we had what we later discovered was that um, the guys in Green Day had gotten a copy of of our record, and they were fans of it. And nice. they they were, um, you know, as soon as as soon as that album came out and they became so big and they were such a phenomenon, they did a really good job of like staying connected to, and they, they've always, they've always done that. They've continued to do that where they'll, they'll, they'll take like bands out with them that are like genuinely unknown bands. Like they'll, they'll, they'll use their opening spot to kind of give people a break who actually need it instead of, like allowing themselves just to always be partnered with whoever the label wants them to be partnered with. You know? Right. So, so they're kind of using the opening slot as a showcase for, for bands. Yeah. And it, they, I know that they've, there were some other bands that, that really benefited from that. Um, That's and, awesome. but, but we were, we were one of them. It, you know, being associated with them at that time brought some attention to us and we, we ended up, being contacted by their management who asked us if we wanted to be on this label that they were trying to start. Oh. And and we said, uh, Oh, well we, we need to think about it and, and you know, we'll let you know. Okay. And, and then we contacted Joe Shanahan who owned the Metro in Chicago, who we had played there and he, he was just a great guy who had come and introduced himself and said, Hey, if you ever need anything, I know bands, I just try to help bands. And, and, uh, you know, if you, if you ever need anything, just let me know. Right. And he just kind of left it at that. And so I got off the phone with green day's manager and I called Joe Shanahan. <laughs> I said, Joe, uh, we just got a, like a, a offer of a, for, to, you know, to sign a record deal. And I don't know what we should do. And he helped us navigate that. And we, we ended up in the process asking him to officially be our manager. Oh, cool. And he, he reached out to some different labels and sort of got sort of a bidding war, which there was a lot of that going on. There's a, there's a lot of like uh, Hollywood record labels interested in, in Chicago bands. So it wasn't, it wasn't hard, you know, to get three or four different, record deals being offered to us by major labels. Oh, okay. But Joe was the guy that kind of facilitated all that and kept us from just losing our minds during all that process. <laughs> you eventually signed with Capital. Yeah. And it's from what I... I think large part because we wanted to be on the same label as Frank Sinatra. Oh, nice. That's freaking awesome. Yeah. Oh man. You know, still alive at that time. I can't remember what year he died, but I know that he was still alive. There was a brief period of time where we were actually on the same label as Frank Sinatra. As the living Frank Sinatra. The living Frank Sinatra was. <laughs> but from what I read, the relationship was a little on the tense side after the first album, though. Is that, was that the case? Because that, that's the. Uh, the impression, I guess I should say, that I got from from reading the uh, some of the issues that they were having with with some of the releases that they were, but I guess that's that's not all that unusual, is it? Well, I guess not. I think in our case, the tension in our relationship with Capital 
was our fault because uh, we weren't being cooperative with certain things that they wanted us to do uh, promotionally. And that had a lot to do with, um, you know, back in the 90s, there was a big to-do about selling out. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Remember when it was like, man, if you got accused of selling out, you were just like... You were done. You were, you were done. You were blacklisted. Yeah. And we were kind of paranoid about that. Especially like we actually signed to a major label. So we 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 could easily be accused of having sold out. And I think I was self-conscious about that. And so like a lot of the things that the label would suggest, um, we just said no to. Like we they wanted us to do all these... Uh, like in-store appearances, and we hardly ever agreed to any of them. Oh, yeah. Um, and they had ideas about our video. We would have these meetings with them where they, they wanted to bring in these directors and, like, do all these, like, crazy exciting videos where there was, like, some video treatment they wanted us to have where there was, like, we'd be playing next next to a swimming pool, like, at a pool party. Okay. And there were these, like, punks with, like, Liberty Spikes, like, moshing and stuff and then they would start jumping into the pool i don't know we didn't and, and we rejected that and then they they had another one where they wanted us to dress up in suits and sort of play up the uh the sinatra thing and we didn't want to do that either yeah <laughs> and we ended up insisting on using a local chicago guy to make our video and making it the way we wanted which wasn't didn't have any of the curb appeal of the ideas that they wanted. And, I, and then I think that the, the, the big one that really was the, the, the last straw was that we were offered a tour where we would be main support for Alanis Morissette. Oh, wow. And uh, I turned down. I said no to that. <laughs> wow. Because I just, I felt like, you know, it wasn't. That's a strange combination. I, I felt like it was a strange combination. But, but now, I, now, you guys did do some weird things. I mean, you tri you toured with Tripping Daisy and Morrissey. Yeah, well, the Morrissey connection, you can see. I mean, I was I was huge into the Smiths. Yeah, I, I, that I makes more sense now. Comes through in my vocal style a little bit. Tripping Daisy was, uh, I mean, they weren't exactly our style, but they were a cool band. They had a little more of like a like a psychedelic vibe to their stuff. But Oh yeah, they were awesome. They were cool. I just felt like to me, and I heard that, that, that would be like the epitome of, of selling out because she was, um, she was very commercial. She seemed to me like, and I don't, you know, I don't want to disparage her work. I, I feel differently about it now than I did then. Right. And I, I am looking back and seeing that it probably would have been a really good move for our career to go ahead and do that tour. Yeah. But on principle, I said no. Yeah. But she was like, she was like a top 10 recording artist at that point. Yeah. Jagged Little Pill had exploded. Huge, huge. Like we would have been playing in front of like, you know, thousands of people every night. Yeah. And, uh, and I said no to it. And then the, the president of the label like called me up at home. Oh, wow. And he, he had words with me. He was like, are you crazy? Do you, do you realize the opportunity that this is like, who cares if it's not a perfect musical match? Yeah. Do you realize how many people are going to discover your band 
as a result of you doing this to her? And I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) eventually like I begrudgingly said, okay, like, like a week later, but like by then, like everybody was trying to get on that bill. Instead, they gave it to the rentals. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But that incident, I think that's when the, 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 the people at Capitol were like, we can't work with these guys. You know, they're just, they're, they're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> you guys were kind of, you were partying pretty hard at that time too, right? Cause I, I did hear a story about you had thought that you were overdosing really badly. And that's kind of yes. what, what brought you to finding your faith. Yes, that's true. I like, I like pretty much when, as soon as we got signed, I started smoking pot every day, wow. which I, you know, I had, uh, I had smoked pot before, but at that point I decided to embrace it as a, as a permanent daily habit where I would just like wake and bake and remain stoned every all day, every day. Wow. Which did not help any aspect of, of <laughs> like actually dealing with the, any of the pressures that, that were coming upon us at that time. Right. Um, and then along the way started to, I mean, also drinking somewhat heavily and occasionally experimenting with other things. You know, if, if somebody had an interesting pill that they were <laughs> off, of, I would take it. That's a cool color. Yeah. But then there was an experience with, I, I didn't have much experience with cocaine, only did it a couple of times. The last of which was at this, uh, party in Hollywood after we played at the, at the Viper room. Oh no, the Roxy. We played at the Roxy. And then, um, that didn't go well because I was I was drunk at the show and didn't play well. And we went to this party and I did a bunch of cocaine and then thought that I was gonna die because my my heart was just like beating like that. Oh wow! And uh, like you know they called an ambulance for me and I, you know when I was when I was waiting for the ambulance to show up I I started praying and it turned out to be a, just a significant turning point in my life. Yeah. In in ways that ended up being good, but it was it was a dark moment. Yeah, it's um, it must have been just frightening. Yeah, because we had a tour manager at the time who had been a paramedic. And so he would um he would tell us, you know, as we're on tour and stuff, he would share stories with us about like different situations that he had been in as a paramedic. He would get called to these, you know, show up at the, at the all manner of like bizarre situations and stuff. Right. But he would tell us details about like people ODing on different things. And, uh, one thing that he said to us was, you know, if somebody, uh, ODs on pills, you can just, you know, their heart stops, you can just give them CPR and start the heart back up. Right. Um, and there are things you can do even if a person ODs on like heroin or, you know, opioids, uh, of that nature. There are things you can do to revive the person Yeah, because those things just slow their heart down to the point of stopping and you just start it up again. But if a person does too much Coke and then has a heart attack, it's like their heart starts being so fast that it like bursts. Right. 
so the heart is broken and there's, there's no you can't resuscitate that person. no no so that fact was was very present in my mind as i was waiting for this ambulance to show up and my heart is just like racing racing and i just thought i'm going to i'm going to have a heart attack and i cannot be resuscitated like this is it gosh so i uh i was just kind of laying there uh i went out onto the patio of this hotel we were staying in and and um laid down and and waited and looked up at the sky and just uh, like I, I didn't know i didn't have much of a concept of who god was okay but i was just like god, god if you're there and you're real i need you i need your help i need you to get me through this you know and and if you <laughs> one thing i do remember i specifically said to god at that time i was like I sure, I'm sure you hear this all the time. <laughs> but if you get me through this, I won't live like this anymore. And uh, he got me through it. You know, I lived. And so I decided to, uh, you know, be true to my end of the bargain. And I, it started me like on a spiritual journey where I, uh, for about a year there, I was, I was more my these uh, Buddhism and, and Eastern philosophy okay, and different kinds of meditation and things like that. Um, but eventually discovered that, you know, while there are benefits to meditation and, and all of that, like what I was actually looking for was a relationship with God mm -hmm. and that you weren't going to find that in Buddhism. Right. Because Buddhism is more of a philosophy than it is a religion when you get right down to it. I know it, like, it is one of the major religions of the world, but if your definition of a religion is some sort of organized way to have a relationship with a specific deity, um, that's not what Buddhism is. Right, right. So then I started to branch out from there and reading um, other things and reading the Bible and specifically reading the Gospels the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And that just really was a transformative thing. And ultimately, you know, found that that was, that was the, the truth that I was looking for. So how did that affect the band? Um, or did well, it affect the band? It did. For, there was a brief period of time where I was, I started trying to incorporate my newfound Christian faith into what the popes were doing. Right. And one of the ways I did that was I wrote this song called I Know You Love Me, which is kind of a, it's a, it's, it's, it's like a prayer song. It's a song to, to Jesus, but it like sort of comes across like a love song. Right. Yeah. It's a great song. Thank you. I know. But I would, I, we, we put that on our album and, and um, I decided what I would do is we, we would save that song for the end of the set and I would come out and do it like just with guitar and I would 
talk for a minute, which is like try to share my faith with people and kind of approach right. it like evangelistically. Right. You know, I really got mixed results on that one. Yeah, I was going to say that you you run the risk of that. <laughs> that was that was in many cases not well received. And uh, I, after about six months of trying to do that, I was like, "This isn't sustainable." I, I either need to stop trying to do that in this band, or I need to just get out of this band. Okay. <laughs> so. And I felt like that's, that's what I needed to do at that time. I quit the band. Um, and just for a period of a couple of years, then just devoted myself to, I only played music in church and, uh, you know, for a while there, I thought I had permanently renounced rock and roll, which I eventually changed my mind about, but I still see that as a really helpful and necessary time that allowed me to just get grounded in my faith and figure it out and, and figure out like what, what was really going on with Christianity, you know, like, yeah. like I, I had to actually read the Bible and see what was in there instead of just like, you know, the gospel of John. Right. Um, and to, to kind of grow in my faith. And, and so that was great. I did that for a few years. And then when, when I, when I came back around to being in rock bands again, and eventually coming to the smoking popes again, I was solid enough in my Christian faith to, to not feel like, uh, I was going to have to compromise that, you know, like I was going <clears> to, <throat> I think the thing I was afraid of was that my faith was going to end up being like this phase that I went through because I'd seen uh, that people, yep. certain musicians come to a point in their career where they, they become a Christian. They put out like the find I found God album found God. And they, yeah. And they put out like one or two albums yeah. that are super godish, And then they just go back to being normal. And right. From what I could tell, in a lot of those cases, it's something that didn't really stick in a personal either. And that really scared me because I, I wanted I wanted desperately to have this stick. Right. So so I took a few years to 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 do that and I'm glad I, I did because then I could eventually come back and I can do the smoking popes again. And I am I'm still I don't feel that that's in conflict with the fact that I am like fully a, a Christian like follower of, of Jesus who like embraces all, all that, all that's there in the Christian faith. And these days you got to be careful because if you, you know, if you identify as like a Christian or specifically an evangelical Christian, which I think technically I am, that's sort of a loaded term these days. Politically, yeah, it really is, and I, I don't connect with a lot of what the uh, evangelical political worldview seems to be. So that's a little tricky. Oh, I'm so, sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I, I still want to be open about the fact that, like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Trump supporter. You said you were working on ways to uh, to make sure you were still grounded before going back to the popes. Is that how Duval started? Was was Duval kind of like a almost like a testing ground for you? Yes. Yeah. So Duval was intended to be a Christian version of the Smoking Popes. Okay. And it was kind of an again, it was like an evangelistic 
experiment where I was going to um, do something that was stylistically similar to the Pope's, but had uh, like Christian themes in the lyrics, and it would give me an opportunity to go back to rock clubs and in- incorporate, you know, elements into our set where I was where I would be talking about God and faith. Yeah. And possibly to an audience that already knows what what's yeah, what's like, going to happen. People, yeah. So it wasn't totally um, a more understanding, accepting audience. Yeah, it wouldn't be totally out of place. Yeah, in a setting like that. So. a few years and you know we made a couple of EPs and a full length album and, and a Christmas album yeah I like the Christmas and... album man. oh thanks that yeah was... that one was really fun that was really cool thank you was, I mean, was Duval always did you know it was going to be temporary or you know until you felt comfortable that you could go back to the Popes or was there something that just kind of made you stop Duval and say let's let me get back to the smoking Popes uh, no, I didn't go into it thinking it was going to be temporary. Everything was always <laughs> this this dramatic, permanent, you know, thing that's going to, this is how it's going to be from now on. <laughs> you know, but then you, you just kind of evolve. At least my thinking these matters has always evolved. I, and I pray that it always will continue to do so. And uh, becoming more mature in my thinking and realizing that, um, you know, certain ideas I had about things aren't necessarily true as far as like how to, uh, about how to live things out. I mean, like, you know, like the, the basic spiritual realities of the Christian faith that I embraced are eternally true about like who Jesus is and, how a person is saved and, you know, his atoning sacrifice, uh, on the cross and his resurrection and, uh, eternal life and forgiveness of sins and all these kind of things through, you know, like those are just, those are just basic unchanging truths. But like Mm -hmm. what's always evolving is my understanding of like how to live those things out and how I'm supposed to move forward in life in light of those things and how my life is supposed to be shaped by those truths. Um, Okay. Yeah. And I think at first there's always a lot of denial of like denial as in like denying myself things, you know, like renouncing things. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to quit this band and I'm never going to play rock music again. Right. You know, and I'm going to throw away all my CDs. Oh, you know, (laughs) heard all of that from my life and like, which I did. And then you have to slowly rebuild your record collection eventually. Yeah. 
<laughs> that would take a long time. I got like 3,500 behind me. 3,500. Wow. Yeah. And that, yeah. When you decided that you wanted to be in the, in the Pope's again, how was everybody excited to get back together or was it a little more nervous energy there? Um, at first when I started, you know, telling the other guys in the band that I, I was ready to come back and be in the Pope's again, like they were, I think a little skeptical um, because I had been so adamantly against it. Right. Um, you know, there, we, we had had like, during the time when I was not in the Pope's, you know, we would occasionally get these offers to do certain things, play shows like, hey, if you guys would get back together, you could go on tour with, with so-and-so and it would be awesome. And I always just said no to it. I was just steadfast in my refusal. And then so for me to turn around and say, I'm ready to come back. I think at first they thought maybe it was some, again, some sort of like bait and switch evangelism scheme. And I had to assure them that that was not the case. Right. Okay. I had just kind of worked through some of my hangups about rock and I was ready to come back to it. And by the time we did our reunion, the popes had been broken up for seven years. And so you know, the reunion show and then the reunion tour that we did then was very uh, exciting. Like we, we were just like, all, all the shows were sold out and it was, it was people who were just like, I'm so glad you guys are back together. I never thought I'd get to see you play. Like, this is so great. You know, so that was a particularly fun time. That kind of enthusiasm doesn't, doesn't last forever, but you have to uh, enjoy it while it's there. Yeah. And I have a, all right, so I have a question. I've heard a few tracks from Jackson Mudd. That's really cool. How did you decide you wanted to do a blues album? What was, what was the impetus for, for a blues album? Oh, that was just like the Popes weren't very active at that time. It was sort of like a, a little bit of downtime between records for the Popes. Okay. And I was just, it just just purely for fun i always had kind of wanted to play in a blues band because i i like uh i like blues and i like playing blues guitar and so it was just i i knew some guys who also had the same uh the same kind of thoughts about it that they you know it was something that they they wanted to do and i don't know we just just kind of let off some steam but it was really cool. I mean, I'm a big Elmore James fan, so I love that you did Stranger Blues. I think that was really cool. I, uh, yeah, I love how that song turned out. And, uh, a couple of guys in that band had really not been in bands that played out before. Like the bass player had, he was like a blues guy who had been in some blues outfits that had played around, but the drummer and keyboard player 
from Jackson Mud Band are guys that I knew from church. Oh, okay. And they were really good players, but they had not been in bands that had played out in clubs. Oh, wow. So for us to, to get gigs and to go out into the world and, and make music at like at an actual club, it was really fun to do that with them because they were just so uh, sort of almost uh, childishly excited about doing it. <laughs> That's awesome. Expectations. Like it was cool because I could play a show with the Jackson mud band and it would be a pretty small crowd because nobody knew who we were It's a new band. You're starting out and, and there's not much crossover. It's not like smoking Pope's fans are going to go see a blues band just because I'm in it. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's not a, the genres are not connected. So, right. So we're playing to like, you know, pretty small crowds of people, but like the guys in the band are just, excited like if it, if it had been the popes playing to that crowd we would have all said well we're we're done like we would just we're, <laughs> we're walked up we're finished <laughs> kaput kaput but um no with with jackson mud there were there were no kind of uh expectations or presumptions that it had to be at a certain level it was just always just fun to play and if anybody showed up that was great it was seemed to reach just a really pure project, just having fun and going out and playing some songs that you loved. Yeah. And there was like no aspirations that, okay, now I, this was a, this was growth for me because I, I embarked on a project without feeling like this is now the thing I'm going to do permanently <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> I went into this knowing that it was kind of just a side project and, you know, maybe we would play a little bit. We've actually got a show lined up for this summer. Oh, cool. Jackson Mud Band is like a one or two shows a year kind of a band. Okay. So all right, so that being a side project that isn't the be-all and end-all for you, what about the band for the new album that you're releasing? You hooked up with John San Juan from Hush Drops and John Perrin from NRBQ. Yes. And you did this really cool live show that with, you know, no audience because it was recorded and streamed during the pandemic. So how did you hook up with those guys and decide to do this show? I've known those guys, both of them for many years because our bands have played on bills together and I've just known them from the music scene for many, many years. But we've, we've never been in a band together, but they're both very, very talented. And I've always admired their work and uh, liked them on a personal level. And so I've always kind of wanted to, to jam with them. And then last summer, when everything was shut down, you know, the, all the Pope's shows booked for 2020 obviously got canceled right and i saw that um, there was this club in chicago called the hideout that started having these virtual shows like they pretty quickly adapted to the the situation of the lockdown and developed a really cool and effective online presence for their club where they would do you know shows where people would come in and they would be like kind of distanced from each other and there was nobody in the room. And so it was like, they're trying to be as safe as they could, but they were still putting shows out there. Okay. And uh, I just said, 
to myself, that is pretty cool. I like that. I, I want to do that. I want to be involved in that. But yeah. like, well, for some reason, it just struck me that it just, it felt more like a, like this is a break in the action for the popes and it's, it, it would, it's just more fitting to, uh, explore something else. Right. Kind of, it's kind of like the off season. And so, um, I was like, well, I'll just, uh, I'll take this opportunity to, to jam with these guys and see if we can put something together that would, that would work as, as a, as a solo set, okay. you know, and I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to, um, write a new batch of songs. Okay. I decided that I wanted to, uh, work up a, a set of covers that would be like old songs, kind of like the Popes did with uh, the party's over. Okay. Like if you're familiar with that Pope's album at all, it's, it's all covers. And most of the songs on the album are old songs that were like from the Frank Sinatra era of classic American songwriting. Right. And it was really fun to, to, it's, it's fun to interpret that music. Those songs are so well-written that you can interpret those songs in a, in a variety of different ways and still there's so much juice in the song, you know? Oh yeah. There's always more to squeeze out. (laughs) And so, um, ever since the Popes did that record, I've always wanted to kind of explore that genre of, of music more. And I thought this would be an opportunity to do that. Why don't I find a batch of songs, really good old songs that we didn't do on the parties over and maybe, you know, do some of them. Uh, on this, on this project. And, and, but since it wasn't going to be a Pope's thing, I then realized that I could, I could take a few Pope songs and reinterpret those as well and sort of treat them like cover songs. Right, right. side by side with these other cover songs and uh i don't know that just sort of became the whole vibe of the project well you've got some really interesting choices like could one of my favorite songs of all time is i only have eyes for you oh it's such a beautiful song yeah it is and you guys you just completely turned it around and and took it in a you know really cool different direction and that wah solo at the end is just awesome. Oh, thanks. Absolutely love that ending. That I bought a wah pedal for for the Jackson Mud Band. Since <laughs> found a new use. Yeah, it doesn't. I, I it doesn't have much application in smoking Pope's world, but no. I just <laughs> do incorporate it. 
for this project, and it's really fun. There's some really cool. I like. I also love the version of Megan. I think that is fantastic. And you made a song that I absolutely. Well, I don't want to say I hate, <laughs> but I can't stand <laughs> because I grew up with this song, and it was one of the songs my mom would play, and I would just like, oh god, not this song. But the first time ever I saw your face, and you've made that tolerable for me. So that's that's oh. a. That's a tribute to you. <laughs> You're not, not a Roberta Flack fan, are we? Not really. I remember my mom playing that all the time, and she had the, the, the LP, so the, the gatefold opened up, and it was just Roberta on a piano, but so yeah. it, was, it wasn't the whole thing. It was just like the cutout of the piano would open up. Like open up in sections. You yeah. could like pull just the piano out, and then the whole thing. So that, I had that record. That was the part that fascinated me. The fact that she played that song over and over again, and it made me so sad. I absolutely just hated it. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little kid at that point, but just like, I, why do you want to hear the song that makes you sad? Let me go put on Disco Mickey Mouse, and, and we'll all be happy. But now you heard it too much when you were small, and you've got PTSD from that song, and so it's ruined forever. Pretty much, unless somebody does a new take on it. Well, I'm glad to have been of service. <laughs> <laughs> I've redeemed the song for you. Yes. Yeah. Well, your version. I don't know that I'm going to listen to the Roberta Flack version ever again, but. Oh, well. So is the the songs that you picked for this, is there a connection between the Pope songs and the, the cover songs on there? Is, is there a reason you chose the songs you did, covers and Pope's? Yeah. A lot of the cover songs that I picked for this are songs that I have been very directly influenced by and i think that that influence shows up in the smoking pope's music for example the melody and the kind of cadence of the 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 singing in need you around has always been reminiscent of the song what kind of fool am i right okay like if if you compare those melodies, there there's a similar cadence to them, and so uh, I thought it would be kind of cool to put those songs back to back on the record, so you can okay. really see, see the continuity between the two. That, okay, and the, so the Pope's songs on there, you know, they definitely sound different than the Smoking Pope's versions. Was that an organic way that you guys played, or was it a conscious decision to make it sound? not exactly like a smoking Pope's version. Yes. That was a very conscious thing. I was like, if we're going to play any Pope songs, we need to take a completely different approach. Okay. But that's, that's the whole, that's kind of the, the uh, concept of the album. It's about interpretation because back, you know, when, when, when a song like my funny Valentine or what kind of fool am I, when those, when, when those songs came out, and that you hear them being done by, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and Robert Goulet and, you know, Nat King Cole and people like this. Th those singers are interpreters of songs. They don't, they're not writing their own songs. Right, right. They're taking great songs that are very well written and they're, they're kind of uh, putting those through the filter of their own voice and their own personality and they're, they are expressing themselves through those songs. And like some of my favorite music in the world is people who are 
interpreting songs that they did not write. And so I think there's a lot of value in that. I think that's a very valid artistic thing to do. Oh, yeah. But there is a lot of expectation these days that if you're doing cover songs, it's like somehow it's a throwaway project. Oh, man. That's, I see, I never looked at it that way. I actually loved when bands would do cover songs. If they, if they, infuse themselves into the song. I didn't want a straight cover version of anything, really. I wanted I wanted to hear a band do their version of whatever song they chose. Yeah, me too. And so that's the whole spirit behind this, this record. So do you have more plans to do anything beyond this with John yeah. and John? In fact, um, we're going to celebrate the release of this album by making another one. Oh, awesome. We're going to do like a record release show where we record a batch of 10 more songs to be released as, as an album next year. You know, that could just keep going on and on. Yeah. You could do that forever. <laughs> we're going to celebrate the second release with a release party that we're going to record. And it... I, we, I could see us maybe getting to a point where we feel like we've bled this one dry, but I think that... <laughs> There's still some blood in this stone, so we're gonna we're gonna make at least one more of these albums. <laughs> That's awesome. And I wanted to ask you. I mean, I found out that you had contracted COVID a while yeah. back. I just want to see how you're doing and see how how have you recovered? Because I've had a couple of friends uh, did have COVID and they've had some lingering effects. Um, and I, my my wife's uncle had, had passed from it. His uh, his immune system was fairly compromised though so that unfortunately was not a surprise yeah i'm sorry to hear that well thank you man. yeah i do i had it in november okay and i i do have some lingering effects uh specifically joint pain because what you know when when i had covid everything hurt my whole body was just aching right all right. my joints but then after i recovered ever since then my hips and my shoulders still ache pretty much every day. Wow. That never, never was an issue before. So it's, it, it definitely is a result of COVID. That's, that's just such an unreal virus, man. It's just, Oh, I know it's incredible, but well, I'm glad you're doing all right. Well, aside thanks. from the joint pain. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and consider it a blessing that I that I lived, didn't wind up on a ventilator. I know some people, you know, there's a, a member of our church who got it and uh, is awaiting a lung transplant. Oh, wow. Yeah, like just total lung failure. So, like, it's serious. But it's weird because then a lot of people get it and they, they feel like they have a cold for two days and then they're fine. Yeah. I've heard that too. Yeah. It's just, it, you just never know. No, exactly. Well, where can people find the album and how can they order it and help support the art? I would say probably the two best ways to get the album. If you want, if you want a physical copy on vinyl, which I highly recommend cause it's a, it's a gatefold sleeve, which with pictures and liner notes inside. So with a it's really... die cut of Roberta Flack's piano. <laughs> right. Oh, I should have done that. <laughs> die cut of a guitar on the front. 
Um, no, I would say uh, you should order it from the labels. So go to, uh, what, I'm going to look, is it Pravda.com or is it PravdaRecords.com? I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah. Pravda, mu- Pravda Music. It's PravdaMusic.com. Okay. And you'll you'll be able to order it either on vinyl or CD from there. Or um, if you want it digitally, uh, go to Bandcamp. I, you know, just Josh Cater on Bandcamp. Okay. Is there a social media presence that people can follow to get keep up with you and in, in the the stuff you're doing with your solo stuff, the Popes? Sure. Yeah, just at Josh Caterer. Okay. On Twitter and Instagram, and you can find me as Josh Caterer on Facebook. Perfect. Well, man, I appreciate you spent a lot of time with me tonight, and thank you so much for for going over everything. It's been really fascinating and a lot of fun speaking with you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I've enjoyed the conversation, and thanks for uh, wanting to dig in so far. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.